five. In 1862, General Robert E. Lee was commander of the Confederate armies, and uh, he was coming up against George McClellan, the commander of the Union armies, in an area called Sharpsburg, Virginia. And Robert E. Lee did something that the textbooks say you should never do. He had 45,000 soldiers under his command, and he was up against McClellan, who had 70,000 soldiers under his command, and Robert E. Lee chose to split his troops. His intention was to send one-third of his army to the west to take an area there, and then while two-thirds of his army slipped out from under McClellan and to go into Maryland, which is what uh, Robert E. Lee chose to do. Now, Robert E. Lee, to execute all of this, wrote out by hand on nine pieces of paper exactly where he wanted all of his troops, all of his lieutenants, and all that sort of stuff to be, where everybody was supposed to be. Well, one of his lieutenants had wrapped up three cigars in his piece of paper that Robert E. Lee had given him with where his particular troops were supposed to be, as well as the map of where everybody else's troops were going to be. And when the, when the Confederate armies left their camp there in Sharpsburg, Virginia, um, the Union army came in behind them and took that area, that territory, while two of the Union soldiers walking around uh, on the ground saw these cigars sitting on the ground with a piece of paper wrapped in them, opened it up, and realized what they had in their hands. They had the entire battle plans for the next 48 hours for all of the Confederate troops. Well, with this information, McClellan could have come in and taken out, completely decimated, historians say, the Confederate armies, and the Civil War would have ended right there. Well, so these two soldiers rushed this information to McClellan. McClellan, what's he do? He sits on it. For 24 hours, he does absolutely nothing with this golden opportunity that's been given to him. And Robert E. Lee realizes, somehow realizes, that one of the pieces of paper that had been handed out has been lost. And so he recalls his troops from the West, and things don't go so well for McClellan at the Battle of Antietam. At the Battle of Antietam, more lives were lost on American soil than in any other one day in any other battle in all of the wars that have been fought in America in one day. Um, I share that with you because it opens up this idea of opportunity. McClellan had a golden opportunity in front of him, and he squandered the opportunity that he had. What we're going to see today is a similar opportunity that David has when he's walking out one day and some, some things happen in front of him, and he has the same kind of golden opportunity in front of him. We're going to see what David does with that opportunity. Then we'll talk about what difference all this makes to your life and to mine. So uh, let's stand and read together from 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're in this series on the life of David. We just got started with it, and we're taking a look at today the story of David and Goliath, or at least the first half of that story. We'll look at the second half of that story next week. We're going to be reading 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 31 through 33, and then verses 36 through 37. And this captures David's conversation with King Saul as David's about ready to go out and fight Goliath. Let's read together. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. 
And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. You may be seated because none of the rest of us are going to be with you. But in any case, let's take a look at this story, kind of back up just a little bit and see how David got to the point where he's standing in front of King Saul, okay? So let's go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 17 and verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. So we got a map for you here. You can see the Philistine armies are west. They control the coastline just southwest of Israel. And you can see Jerusalem to the east, just west of the northern tip of the Dead Sea. And so these two armies, the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines, come together at this middle point at the Valley of Elah. I've got a few pictures for you here. This is, archaeologists tell us, this is actually the very spot. Terry's shaking his head. I think he's actually been there before and walked out on this ground. This is the exact spot where David faced down Goliath. I mean, you're looking at the same piece of real estate where this happened. The armies of Israel were one one side on one mountain and the armies of, of the Philistines were on the opposite side and in this valley in between them and that's where David and Goliath met one another. Verse 4, it says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. You say, Gordon, I don't really translate six cubits and a span. How tall are we talking about here? Well, you translate that into feet and inches and we're looking at over nine feet tall. This guy, Goliath, was over nine feet tall. You say, Gordon, see, I told you, the Bible is not reliable. It's full of myth. It's full of, full of fairy tale. I mean, who's nine feet tall? There's nobody nine feet tall out there. Well, I did a little bit of research on that, Google. And I, I said, well, Guinness Book of World Records, who's the tallest guy? Because, you know, there's all sorts of But this is verified through the Guinness Book of World Records. The tallest guy in recorded history, so in modern history, was eight feet feet 11 inches tall here's a picture of him his name is Robert Wadlow holy smokes that's not a child standing next to him right there those are real legs and real pants he's not on stilts this guy was 8 feet 11 inches tall he was born in Alton Illinois he was measured in June I've ended June 1940 so within the last century in the last hundred years and this guy was measured. He was 22 years old at the time that he was measured. He wore size, get this, 34, 37 AA shoes. Try keeping your kids in shoes that fit them like that, right? I mean, he's got duck for feet. I mean, it's crazy, this guy walking around. Um, so he, uh, he was, his arm span from tip to tip finger, was 9 feet 6 inches. There's another picture, you can Google it yourself if you want to see, of him standing underneath of a basketball rim. His head almost touches the net. I mean, he could reach up with his 4.5 foot wingspan of his arm and dunk a basketball without even having to jump. And this was, again, recorded in modern history. There were many other people who have been over 8 feet tall that are recorded in modern history. So the idea of a guy being over 9 feet tall, friends, this is not outside of the realm of possibility over the last 3,000 years, okay? So the Philistines have this giant in their camp, verse 7. It says that his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. I had an opportunity just a couple of days ago. I pulled out a sledgehammer. I was trying to break up this piece of concrete. And so I'm swinging the sledgehammer. How, how, big is it? How, how heavy is the head of a sledgehammer? I want to say nine pounds. Does that sound about right? 
Yeah, okay, that's right. So anyway, I'm swinging the head, the head of the sledgehammer, nine, nine pounds. Well, the head of Goliath's spear, friends, it says 600 shekels, is actually 15 pounds. And the head of his spear was 15 pounds. Can you imagine taking a sledgehammer as heavy as the head of that thing is and trying to throw it like you're going to launch it at somebody? Well, Goliath was so big, he was so strong that he could throw a spear that just the tip of it weighed 15 pounds. I mean, anything that he hit, whether it was a man or a horse, it doesn't matter what it was, he was going to pin that thing to the ground. It was going to be dead as a doornail. Okay, verse 8. And so he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Verse 9. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will, be with, we will be your servants. But if I prevail against that person you send out to me and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So what Goliath does is he goes out every morning and he taunts the Israelites. And what he's doing is he's saying, hey, look, send one of your guys out here and the two of us will duel it out. We will battle it out to the death. And whoever wins, then that army will be declared the victor. And this was not uncommon in the ancient Near East. To avoid a whole lot of bloodshed, to avoid both of these armies having to clash against one another, each would send a representative from their army and whoever won that battle would be declared the winning country or the winning city-state or the winning whatever it was, and so the other would become uh, the servant of, of the victor. Um, Forty days of this goes by. Forty days. Nobody from Israel wants to go out and fight the man with a 15-pound tip of his spear, right? I don't blame him. So 40 days this goes by. Forty days Goliath goes out there. He's taunting the armies of Israel every morning. Well, David had three brothers who were under the employ, who were in the army of King Saul. If you remember last week, we talked about how David was anointed the new king of Israel. Well, he hadn't been installed as the king yet. He was just identified as the next king, okay? And that was secret within he and his family. This wasn't known to Saul at the time. Saul is still the reigning king of Israel at this point. And so um, David, uh, he has three brothers who are uh, in the army, and it's been some time since they've been off to battle, and they didn't have CNN back then, and they didn't have Fox News back then, and so nobody really knew what was going on or why the armies were stalled out the way they were stalled out, why they were in this stalemate. And so David goes out there with some provisions for his brothers because it's been 40 days. He takes some provisions to his brothers. He takes, loads up a donkey with some cheese and some bread and some other supplies, and he brings those out to his brothers so that they can have something to eat while they're off at war. And so David, when he arrives, here's his reaction, verse 26. It says, And David said to the men who stood by, listening to this taunt, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? In other words, what reward will the person get who goes out there and slays this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, in other words, this non-Jewish person who dares, he says, to defy the armies? of God. And so long story short, David ends up because of he, you know, nobody else was talking like that around there. And so long story short, David ends up in front of King Saul. That's what we read just a few moments ago. And I'll remind you again of what he said there. Verse 32, he said to Saul, he said, let no man's heart fail because of this giant. He said, 
your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. We'll come back to that in just a minute, but know that that's kind of a key passage. Now, that's going to be where we stop for today. And so next week, we'll get to the actual battle between David and Goliath. But that's as far as we want to go with the story for today, which means it's time for us to ask that most important question. The one we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? Y'all doing okay? You know, last week, I, after services, I told a couple people, I said, I've never seen so many people fall asleep during one of my sermons as I did this past week. <laughs> I, everybody's waking up now, right? Oh, it was graduation weekend. It was raining outside. Somebody had turned the air conditioning off in here, something like that. I don't know what it was. Maybe I was just didn't have, it, no, it wasn't the content, I'm sure. But in any case, y'all are doing good, right? Wide awake. Okay. Um, so uh, what difference does all this make in my life? You say, Gordon, that's a really great story. I mean, I appreciate it. David, Goliath, David, you know, he, he's not going to take, listen to that, that giant. He had the 15-pound spearhead, all that kind of stuff. That's really great. But I mean, how does this help me in my everyday life? That's a really great question. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about that. You know, when David woke up that morning to take cheese and supplies to his brothers, David had zero idea that he would be out on a battlefield later, later that day. He had no idea that Goliath was awaiting him, that this contest with Goliath was on the other side of that afternoon. Uh, all he thought was, I'm going to go take some supplies to my brothers. They really don't even care that I show up anyway. If you read the account, his brother's like, what are you doing here? He's like, golly, I just showed up with some food for you, right? And so David has no idea that this is what's going to happen, that this is what's going to transpire. But what happens is David gets this remarkable opportunity, the opportunity of a lifetime that just drops in his lap. And so the question for you and I is, how can we be ready like David was ready? when the opportunity that God presents us comes our way. So that's the question we want to spend the balance of our time talking about. How can we be ready for the opportunities that God sends our way? You know, friends, in 35 years, 35 years, uh, I'm 43, yeah, 35 years, that's right. Yeah, I was saved when I was 8 years old. I'm 43, you can do the math here. I was 43 years old. So in 35 years of walking with Jesus, friends, what I have learned is that God... I, most of the opportunities that have been given me are ones that just fell in my lap. I wasn't looking for them. Things weren't, I wasn't out seeking it. It just came and God just kind of wham, smacked me over the head and here it was, right? And so that's the way a lot of opportunities arrive in a lot of our lives. Some of the greatest opportunities that we have are not going to come our way because, or come our way because, you know, we're simply not out there looking for them. It just happens. God just brings opportunities our way. Maybe for you, um, one of those opportunities may be a promotion that you're looking for at work, and you've either got to grab it when that opportunity comes, when it presents itself, or it's gone. Maybe perhaps uh, an opportunity to share Christ with somebody in your family or with a close friend of yours that you've been thinking, oh, they don't want to hear about Jesus, they're not interested in Jesus, and all of a sudden some kind of crisis happens in their life, or some, they start reflecting, or maybe they go to a funeral, they start reflecting on, you know, life's not, do I have heaven ready? Am I ready for, for the other side of the grave? And they begin asking these questions, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, they say, hey, I want to talk about God with you. Friends, that's an opportunity, the opportunity of a lifetime for you to be able to share Jesus with them, and either you're going to be ready, you're either going to grab that opportunity, or it'll be gone. Same thing, stand, take a stand for friends at work, or take a stand in your family, friends. There's an opportunity there, and either you seize that opportunity, or it'll be gone. Maybe some young man wants to pop the question to you, right? You got to be ready for that opportunity, right, ladies? Because the opportunity is there. When it presents itself, either you grab it, you take it, or it may be gone. So lots of opportunities that come our way when perhaps we're not even looking for it. Um, 
David definitely was not looking for Goliath when he went to take his brothers' those supplies, those provisions that day. And yet the opportunity presented itself, and David was ready when the opportunity did. And so we say, well, how is it that David was ready? Well, David tells us right there in the Scriptures. I read it for you. Look at verse 32 again. It says, and David said to Saul, so he's standing in front of the king, he said, let no man's heart fail because of him, because of that giant Goliath. Don't let anybody, their knees knock. Don't let anybody's heart grow faint. Don't let anybody be, uh, be uh, you know, discouraged because of this guy. You say, Gordon, I don't see how that was David telling us how he was ready. Well, friends, what we learn is in other places in the scripture that this is the exact same phraseology, the exact same statement that is made in other places in the scripture when people were facing difficult circumstances. For example, um, these are the exact same words that Moses shared with the people of Israel as they were getting ready to launch off into this campaign into the promised land. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 3, he said, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart be faint. Same thing that David had said. And Joshua and Caleb said to the Israelites when they come back after they're searching out the promised land and they're spying out the land and they come back talk about how it's got all this food in there but then there's also these giants in there. The other spies come back and they're, David or Joshua and Caleb are trying to counteract the bad report that the other spies had given. They, other spies come back, they say there's these giants living there, there's these big people there, we'll never be able to take them out when you go back to Egypt, we're much better off. And Joshua and Caleb say to them, do not lose heart. Don't grow faint of heart, he says to them. Same thing to Moses says to Joshua. He says, Joshua, be strong and be courageous. Don't lose heart, Joshua, as you're about ready to take this leadership role on. This is the exact same statement David makes here to Saul that Moses had made, that Joshua had made on multiple occasions. Do you think it was a coincidence, friends? that David quoted the exact same phrase from the scriptures. Of course it wasn't. David had been reading and meditating on God's word, friends, and that is how David was ready to seize the opportunity that God brought his way when it showed itself. Um, in other words, he shows up to Saul and he says, Saul, let no man... Be faint of heart. In other words, Saul, haven't you been reading your Bible, friend? <laughs> Don't you know what the scriptures say? Don't you know the promises of God? Don't you know who God is? David knew that because David had been saturating his mind with the word of God. Friends, David was prepared to grab the opportunity that God had given him because David had been saturating himself with the word of God and that and why is that important? Because it's in the Word of God that David learned who God is. It's in the Word of God that David learned about the power that God has to overcome whatever the circumstances are. I mean, he's got the resources of heaven at his disposal. It's in the Word of God that David learned about God's character and his attributes and about God's faithfulness to keep those promises. And all of that just became a part of David's DNA. And it's part of what gave him the confidence to walk out there on the battlefield to go, I know I'm going up against a nine foot plus tall guy here. And I'm just a teenager. However, I've got the God of Israel on my side and his promises right on my side. And David did not fear. He seized the opportunity God put in front of him. Friends, 
every big opportunity in our life, every big opportunity, whether it's financial, relational, whatever it may be, comes with big risk. Think about it. David had a really tremendous opportunity that just presented itself to him. But he had a nine-foot-tall risk on the other side. And David was ready, though. He was spiritually prepared to go out and seize that opportunity that was in front of him um, when it presented itself. Um, you know, David says to Saul, he says, Hey, look, I, I've, God, earlier in my life, while I was out there shepherding on the hillsides, a lion came up, and I destroyed the lion with my hands, and a bear came up, and I defeated the bear with my bare hands. He says, that was just, I see now, that was just a warm-up for a nine-foot-tall giant. You know, God's going to allow me to be able to do this. Um, and the Bible says that David ran to go meet Goliath out on the battlefield. I don't know about you, but if the guy that I'm about ready to go fight is nine-plus feet tall, he's got a 15-pound spearhead that he's going to chunk at me, he's huge, I don't think I'm going to be running out there. I'm going to be more of a defensive posture. Like, I want him to wear himself out working his way toward me. But it says David took off and ran across that valley to go meet Goliath. David was eager for the battle. I'm, when, when Goliath saw him coming, Goliath's response is, he starts scoffing David. He starts laughing at David. He's like, you send me a pygmy. And there's a pygmy running out here on the field to fight me. I mean, what is this? What is this little, this little thing? He says, and David says to Goliath, I mean, David gets Goliath's blood boiling. He says, today, I'm going to cut your head off. I mean, again, I don't know that I would want to rouse this guy like that. But anyway, that's what David does. Friends, where did all that confidence come from? It didn't come from David standing in front of a mirror and looking at his muscles because his muscles didn't compare to what Goliath had going on. It came because he had saturated himself with the word of God. He knew the power of God. He knew the promises of God. He knew who God was. He knew his character. He knew his attributes. And he was confident that God on his side, he would have the victory that day. That's why David ran out to the battlefield. And friends, if you and I are going to get that kind of confidence and that kind of courage to step into risky situations... It's only going to come because we ha not because we have a positive mental attitude, not because we have, a, I'm going to you know, make this happen of my own merit and my own grit. That's nonsense. It's going to come because we understand who God is, his character, his power, and we are willing to be men and women of faith and to step out and to seize the opportunity that God has brought our way. The only place, friends, that you can get that kind of confidence is by spending by saturating yourself with the Word of God. You know, one of the other uh, uh, generals that day out in the Battle of Antietam was a guy by the name of Stonewall Jackson. Stonewall Jackson was the lieutenant general, uh, the commander of half of Robert E. Lee's Confederate Army. Uh, Robert E. Lee had such confidence in Stonewall Jackson that he said of him, and I quote, if I had Jackson with me, I would have won the Battle of Gettysburg. I mean, that's how much confidence Robert E. Lee had in Stonewall Jackson. Uh, his biographers said of Jackson, he said, When God decided that the Confederacy should not win the Civil War, he sealed their fate by taking Stonewall Jackson from them. Now, what was it about Stonewall Jackson that was so remarkable? What made him such a tremendous leader? Well, before I get to that, because I'm going to say some really nice things over here about Stonewall Jackson, I want to be clear that the Confederate Army, one of the central issues of why they were in that battle, why they were in this war, was because of states' rights. And I totally agree with states' rights. States' rights are part of the reason why our Constitution was written the way that it was written, to, to 
suppress the power of the federal government so that it, individual rights would be protected. We didn't want to overshadowing uh, federal government with too much power. And so states' rights was a big issue for the Confederacy but, for Confederacy, but also a central issue for the Confederacy was slavery. That's part of the reason why they were at battle. And so I just want to be very clear in saying some nice things about Stonewall Jackson today, that I do not support slavery, that I do not support racism of any kind, friends. However, there were some godly men who fought on the side of the Confederacy, and Stonewall Jackson was one of those people. Stonewall Jackson was an unbelievable opportunist. He was an incredible uh, um, uh, strategist out on the battlefield. I mean, if anybody gave him just a, just a, showed just a chink in their armor just a little bit, or if anybody just gave him any sort of edge or anything, he would exploit that to the absolute maximum. He was just a tremendous, brilliant uh, uh, military thinker. Um, and in fact, not only that, but he was also incredibly brave. He would walk out in the battlefields where there were bullets whizzing past him, cannon fire going over his head. He would be seated on his horse up high where he could get shot at much more easily. And it made his soldiers so nervous. They're like, General, please go back behind the lines. Please don't be out here. And so one of his soldiers asked him one time, they said, why is it? that you are so confident? Why is it that you are so, uh, walk out here walking around with bullets whizzing past you, you're not ducking down, not wincing at all? And here's what he said, and I quote, he said, Sir, my religion teaches me that God is the sovereign controller of all things. Because of that fact, I am as safe in battle as I am in bed. End of quote. Where did this man come up with this kind of confidence? Where did this man come up with this ability to seize opportunity and to take these kind of risks? Well, let me tell you, he got it through 10 years of saturating himself with the Word of God. It was Stonewall Jackson's habit every day. He taught at a little school um, on the backwaters of Virginia at the time called Virginia Military Institute. It was just a little small school back then where they were training up soldiers to fight in the army. And from 1850 to 1860, Stonewall Jackson was a, was a, a professor at this school. Um, during those 10 years, he had a routine every day where he'd finish up classes, he'd come back home, and from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., so for three hours through the middle of the afternoon there, he would spend reading and studying God's Word. He had a commentary, and he had his Bible open, and he would read through it, and he would take notes. He did not allow any interruptions of any kind. For three solid hours, he would study God's Word, and this was his routine every day. No emails, no phone calls, no text messages, nothing. He wouldn't allow anybody to disturb him in his study. He just, and he stood up for three straight hours. He wouldn't even allow himself to sit down because he said it helped his concentration as he was studying through God's Word. And that was his plan every day of his life for 10 years while he was teaching at the Virginia Military Institute. Did he know that the Civil War was coming? No, he had no idea. Did he know that he would be a lieutenant general in Robert E. Lee's army, the Confederate army? No, he had no idea. Back when he was studying, spending three hours every day. Did he know that he would be the commander of half of the Confederate army? No, he had no idea during this time. Did he have any idea that he would be out on the battlefield one day exploiting enemies, uh, you know, 
presenting chinks in their armor to him. Did he have any idea about that? No, he had no idea that any of that was going to happen. But he knew that he had days of preparation in front of him. And so he maximized those days so that whatever it was, whatever opportunity presented itself to him, he would be ready for it down the road. Now, friends, may I point out to you that every one of us here has days of preparation that God gives us before God presents us with opportunities, whether it's an opportunity to share Christ with somebody, whether it's an opportunity to take a stand at work, whether it's an opportunity to answer that question, whether it's an opportunity to get a promotion at work, whatever it might be, God gives us days of preparation before we get those opportunities present themselves. And the real issue for us is do we maximize those days or do we squander them? Do we maximize those days or do we squander them? Think about it. David had days of preparation, didn't he? Days sitting out on the hillside watching those sheep. He could have just sat there and like drawn in the sand and looked at the sky. Instead, what was he doing? He was reading. He was studying the word of God. He was saturating his mind with God's promises, with who God is, with his character. Moses had days of preparation out on the backside of the desert long before the burning bush ever revealed itself. Joseph had days of preparation in the jail in Egypt long before Pharaoh ever had a dream. Esther had days of preparation in the house of her uncle Mordecai long before the opportunity to become the queen of Persia ever presented itself. Nehemiah had days of preparation as the cupbearer for the king long before he ever knew about some wall that needed to be built around Jerusalem. Joshua had days of preparation for 40 years at the feet of Moses before he was ever given the command of Israel. The apostle Paul had days of preparation three years in the deserts of Arabia and then later in Damascus long before he ever heard of or knew about what a missionary was. And what made these men and women able to seize things like burning bushes and missionary journeys and becoming queen was they used the days of preparation that they had well so that when the opportunity came, they were ready. And friends, if you and I are going to be ready for great opportunities that God is going to bring our way, then it's going to be because we maximize the days of preparation that God has given us. If you're not facing some opportunity in your life now, know that it's coming. You are a believer. You are a child of God. God is going to bring opportunities your way. They may be financial in nature. They may be promotions at work. They may be relational. They may have eternal consequences to them. But God will bring opportunities your way, opportunities of a lifetime. And the question is, are we preparing ourselves for that? Or are we squandering the days that we've been given. If we wing it, if we waste these days, if we do nothing to prepare, believe me, when the opportunity that comes, we won't be ready to grab it. It'll be gone. And how do we make the most of the days of preparation? Well, one of the days is we get into the book. We become men and women of the Bible. We saturate ourselves like David had done with the Word of God. And as we learn God's character and we learn about God's power and we learn about God's promises and we grow in confidence, we are preparing ourselves, friends, for the day. And believe me, that day will come. If you're a Christian, you're preparing. There will be a day when God brings you the greatest opportunity of your life. And what you're doing now is that you're preparing for when that day happens. It will happen. 
So I have a challenge for you as we close out here today. My challenge is to maximize the days of preparation that you've been given by spending 10 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, in uninterrupted study of God's Word, saturating yourself with God's Word. You say, Gordon, 10 minutes? I mean, really? McClellan, three hours? Me, 10 minutes? Yeah, because here's what I know, is that if you build the habit of 10 minutes a day of uninterrupted, cell phones off someplace else, TV's off, saturating yourself with God's Word, saturating yourself with God's promises, friends. What I know is that that'll turn into 15, and it'll turn into 20, because it'll become such a vital part that feeds you every day of your life that you can't do without spending time in God's Word. So 10 minutes a day, that's my challenge to you, so that you can prepare yourself for the greatest opportunity of your life that who knows when it's coming or what it'll be, but I can tell you this, if you're preparing for it as a Christian, that day will come and you'll either be ready and you'll grab it or you won't and it'll be gone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for speaking to us today. We know, God, that there are probably some of us here that need to say to you today, Lord, I hadn't been preparing, hadn't thought about my life in this context before. And so, God, we just come to you today to say, okay, Lord, I'm ready to get on your spiritual exercise plan. I'm ready to spend time in your word to saturate myself with your truth and with your promises to wake up something deep inside of me that will produce tremendous confidence in me so that when the day of the opportunity arises, I want to be able to grab it and go with you, Lord. God, as we gather around this table to remember your broken body and your shed blood, Lord, you were ready. You were ready. God, may we um, look to your sacrifice. May we look to your faithfulness, your willingness to go to the cross. Whatever the opportunity. God, it may be something that blesses our life tremendously. It may be something that causes us to sacrifice deeply. But whatever it is, God, we want to be ready. We want you to turn our lives inside out to be a blessing to those around us. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'd speak to us in these quiet moments. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.